And now, Dan Apples connecting the dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I'd thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. Sunday afternoon and welcome to Connecting the Dots. And Thumper, we're going to start this program with uh, Chris uh, Chris Street, but we're going to do it with the video. Go ahead, if you would, play that video. You have a challenge here as uh, our leaders uh, to make these kind of decisions. Uh, For me, I'm concerned that if you make one small decision, pretty soon you'll make a second one and a third one. And I'm just very afraid that someday... You know, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, United States of America downgraded to double A. If it comes to the point where they downgrade U.S. paper to double A and the interest we have to pay goes up accordingly, I want to announce now I will be a heavy buyer because the likelihood that this body would ever allow a default is so negligible. And I hope that day never comes, but if it does, I'll make money off it personally. Wow. (laughs) That gives you a pretty good idea of uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, My guest today is uh, Chris Street. Uh, Chris is an esteemed authority on the realms of geoeconomics and global competitiveness. He's he's traveled literally all over the world. He's worked for various major corporations. He's uh, been involved in bond trading and a lot of different areas of economics over a 40-year period. And he's going to be talking about the state of California and the state of the nation based on the California model. We're going to be talking about that over the next uh, couple of hours. And Chris, I really look forward to this conversation because I know that uh, what you're going to contribute is going to be extremely painful, but with a very, very positive and message, and that is we better take our medicine because it's way overdue. And once we do, it's going to make us sick for a while, but we'll come out on the other side much better off for having taken that medicine. Chris, welcome to the program. Okay, good. There we go. Well, it's great to be here to connect the dots, Dan. You know, it's the, the fun part about life is when you play that little video at the start, did you see how I slowed down? Was very calm and you know serious. And of course, Barney Frank took the bait. That quote 
was used against him. He's going to make the United States default, and then he's going to make a bunch of money. And that's what drove him from office. He was it, the Democrats came up with ads, and and the Republicans came up with ads, and you know he he bowed out, as they say. Well, as George Soros would say, that's part of the plan, isn't it? That uh, they always end up the the ones who make the money are the ones on the inside that watch the whole process implode, and that's why you're here today because you're going to be talking about what's been happening in California, how this whole process has kind of evolved in where we're at now and how we're gonna end up curing uh, this horrible disease called deficit spending. Well, it really is a disease, but, but, but the real issue here, Dan, is America was designed by the founders to be wildly disruptive because they had just won a revolution against the most powerful country in the world. And they were in a hurry to get successful because they were absolutely convinced that if, if the British you know, uh, stopped fighting Napoleon, they were gonna come over and take it back. So the uh, type of government that we have designed our constitution is very difficult for government to actually do anything. It's like being in molasses, but it allows, so that allows the public sector to be, you know, behind the curve and the private sector to be, to be the curve. And uh, what, what's happened in each one of these cycles, and they end up being about 45 years, that America, uh, some, some big, you know, dynamic issue happens, some technology or something in the chaos of the world, you know, is is led by America out of this chaos and into the next big economic boom. And that economic boom, you know, is wonderful, creates wealth. But just like all business models, all corporations, it eventually stops being productive, slows out of gas, you know, starts getting attacked. You get you get a lot of turmoil with people. It's it's ideology now instead of business. And, and they fight, you, you have a crash, and that crash, unlike every country in the world, comes so quick that it's allowed to clear the deck. In mm-hmm. other countries, you know, it takes 100, 200 years for a dynasty in China. Well, when they finally fail, it is so dramatic that they cut off 100 million heads all the way down to the sea. So the founders, you know, they, they were, educated people, they understood 4,000 years of history. They'd seen different governments. They were very familiar with the French Revolution. And they wanted a system that would be so dynamic that it would lead to these periods of success. But more importantly, it would lead to a series of periods of success. So I, I think that's what makes America amazing. Um, I think we're just finishing one of those incredible cycles. And uh, you're right, I'm the optimistic guy that says we're going to go through hell here, but it's absolutely going to be worth it. Well, I agree with you because one of the things that's happened is over the last 50 or 60 years, We've adopted, well, actually, it started with FDR, if not even earlier. We've adopted a lot of these socialist 
ideas and programs. And in doing that, uh, we, we've slowed the process. We've kicked the can down the road. We should have had this uh, bus cycle a long time ago. They keep uh, trying to forestall it because that's the nature of politicians. But at the same time, it's going to happen. There's no question. And we are in an era now that I absolutely think is going to kick their butts. And that is because we've got the technology that a whole bunch of people now are aware of all the things that have been going on, the shenanigans. And uh, there's a lot of people that have figured out where we're heading, and they're going to be part of the curve that's going to pull us back out of this mess. Well, I would like to agree with you, Dan, but each one of these curves are actually led by young people. Uh, and in each one of these curves, I don't care whether it's 1840. Remember, in America in 1848, we'd had six financial crises. We were the second worst financial credit in the world. And you know, the Bank of England ran the world on 60 to 80 tons of gold. Um, and in the first year of the California gold rush, uh, California shipped 80 tons of gold to the U.S. Treasury. In the next nine years, they shipped a total of 750 tons of gold. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, America is the richest country in the world. And the people that made that happen were all these young people that ran, you know, to, to start mining. You know, California went from, I think, something like 17,000 when they found the, you know, this, this is non-Indigenous people, 17,000 uh, to 380,000 in six months. Um, they, you know, the gold rush was so dramatic that uh, in hindsight, if you look at it, the, the Union Army would have lost the Civil War. There was no wealth really in the North. Um, after the gold rush, of course, that was a whole different game. And that gold rush was so immense and, and powerful that you were building trains to the West. You were opening up the West in the middle of a civil war. Um, so and it was young people that did that. So I, I think the key here is we, we know what the problem is and the problem is us, correct? Mm -hmm. it, it's, we, we know our problems. They just aren't willing to, to, to face them. But young people, you know, they're growing up in this sort of bubble of what they knew or what they learned in education and such. And all of a sudden they're getting confronted with failure. You know, I, I don't care what the educational system or whatever it is, when you're an American, you really believe you're somebody different and somebody special. And just look at what it must be like right now for young people who are very aware, and, and I teach university classes, and I want to say very aware that the Biden administration is about to bring back the draft. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you, I mean, my generation went to Vietnam. They were drafted to go there because obviously it was a war that made no sense to anybody but insiders. Um, and that, you know, that, that caused, you know, the real kind of chaos and change um, that this young group of people, my generation, you know, came out of that and, you know, we, we became conservative voters for the next 40 years. You mm -hmm. know, uh, it's young people now are, you know, you, you start out sort of liberal and you, know, you have these humanistic ideas. And, and, and let's face it, you know, in, in you know, 1848, it was Hegelian socialism. In uh, 1893, another 
huge financial crisis, worst depression in the world. It was the anarchists. They killed a president, shot a president. They they were, you know, killing people all over the world. You know, you, America comes out of that. You know, first it's gold. The second one is, you know, three crazy guys with picks and shovel in a place now called Beverly Hills, slant mined picks and shovel down to the largest oil deposit in the world. And in one day, they turned the entire navies of the world into a paperweight. You have this awesome boom. America's the largest manufacturer in the world. You have the 20s and we crash again. You know, you come out of the war and, and we go up, we have this, you know, we own the world and we crash again in the 70s. And now we have this cycle we're going through. Um, it's really, it's about time to crash again. And I'm here in California, which always leads the boom up, but we lead the boom down. California's had negative tax collection every month since la March of last year, despite 2.6 million more jobs. That is not in any economics textbook. That is something that, that's just different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you're right, because we have the basic architecture in our system of government. That's why we've got to be so proud and so willing to sacrifice and fight for that, because the last thing we need is for uh, somebody like Obama or Biden to turn us into a communist country. And that's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to get rid of the system of independent, uh, the 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 uh, individualism that's part and parcel of America, and that's what the California model is about too, because it was the greatest uh, institution of individual individualism of anywhere in the world, but they grabbed that and they destroyed it. They grabbed it. They tried to change it. And uh, they, they've taken advantage of that, but it's why we can turn the whole system around. You're right. They lead it to up and they let it down. Well, here we, here we are today. You know, the sun's out. I'm here in Northern California. The, the, the trees are green. The water's flowing. You know, we're, you're in the United States of America. You know, the, the biggest economy in the world, we're 13.5% of all the imports on the planet. Um, you know, we have uh, water, and, and I'm a big believer in <clears throat> what I call geoeconomics. And this is really that your platform uh, determines what you can do. You know, in, in the old kind of economics, comparable economics, um, uh, that you believe that, you know, you make brooms, and so you should be the best maker of brooms. And I, I make computers, so I should be the best maker of computers. So I should be all the computer maker. And you, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> that sophisticated computer, you know, for most people now is something they can actually wear, you know, on their wrist. I mean, that's a, 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 a incredible computer. You know, we, we keep having to sort of tear down the system and go to the next new technology boom. Um, and the rest of the world, you know, when they close a factory, the factory's still there. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't tear it down. In America, you know, we, we, we close a factory, we bulldoze it, you know, some guy comes out and grinds it in, 
you know, we, we turn the cement into, you know, sort of an aggregate we can pour and make roads on or something like that. So we keep changing. And Dan, we are on the cusp of the greatest economic boom in the history of the planet. And it's just like all the other greatest economic boom brought to you by the United States of America. I'm so tickled that you're saying that. Um, let's talk about what the rest of the world is like. You've worked with China, you've worked with other countries around the world advising them on what makes America tick. Let's hear from you what makes some of these other countries tick and why we have this comparative advantage that cannot be beat. Well, it's comparable, not comparative. Okay. Comparative means that you have an expert. So this is the comparable. If you look at the real world, you have this thing. They Somebody figured out how to go from a water wheel, which means you have to have the river going along and the wheel turns, and that makes the you know, that makes the gears turn. You can thresh corn and such like that. Two, somebody figured out how to move that energy source from from by the water to, to, to places where you have the resources. You know, mm -hmm. nothing like moving, you know, the, the factory up where the iron and coal is and making steel, right? Mm -hmm. And what that's all about is, you know, the steam engine of the that really got going in the 1715s and got perfect, perfected about mid you know 1800s um but once you had this ability to uh to to move uh your, your energy and and machinery wherever you wanted to put it hopefully co-locate it by resources and advantage you, you redefined the world mm -hmm. and for america Today, the average American will consume 154 gallons of water. The average Chinese will consume 21. Mm. And that's across all their industry and everything. Europe is, you know, UK is 30. You know, you pretty much, pretty much America is the water capital of the planet. So water is life. If, if I'm in this, if, if I'm up there on that space shuttle or sitting on the moon looking down, I can see the Great Wall of China. You can actually see it from the moon. It's that big. Mm -hmm. And what it really means is on one side of the Great Wall of China, uh, it's dry. And the other side, it's wet and green. That's called, it's, it's actually, they didn't know what it was when they built it. They hadn't defined what it was. And science now calls that the 15-inch ISO set line. That means on this side, <laughs> they're going to get 15 inches or more, and that side, 15 inches or less. So on this side, you have wealth and beauty and success and food. And on the other side, you have brigands looking how to get across that wall to get some of that wealth and, and beauty, right? Mm -hmm. So when you sort of take a look at where we are in the world today, we have just uh, concluded two very important issues. Um, first of all, we've had this great outsource of manufacturing to the third world. Mm -hmm. It is a belief in just-in-time manufacturing. It is an effort to crunch what's called slack 
or, or you know, redundant productivity out to somewhere around the world and our cheap transportation and our new you know, communication skills will allow us to, you know, to, to get parts here and parts there and bring them together because we have a system and, 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 and assemble them somewhere. Originally, it was going to be in the U.S., but like all mistakes of comparative advantage, <laughs> after a while, the Chinese figure they could assemble them there too, right? They could make those investments. And, uh, and, and the other um, uh, real issue that's out there right now, I, th I think that's, that's coming to the fore, is the issue of population. As much as people talk about how America is slowing down in, in having children, we have this big, you know, can, uh, uh, we, we have enough population that given the effectiveness of people going to live longer and, and do more, our population is stable and, and in fact growing. But our domestic population, not the not the immigrants, but our domestic population. Whereas other countries like China, they just had the census in China. Mm -hmm. China's census is 1.4 million people. That's who's on what what are called the the hukou or the residents. Billion but people. That turned out to be 1.3 billion people mm -hmm. because they killed 100 million girls after they were born. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so China was going to shrink from 1.4 billion to about 800 million by 2070. It's now going to happen by 2050. Mm -hmm. More importantly, the Chinese diet, I mean, three packs of cigarettes a day, greasy food, and absolutely no <laughs> exercise, you know, that pretty much limits their ability to get older. So China is dying. It is literally dead man walking. And America is this place, the only places in the world that really have the demographics are going to work for the future of all places are France, the United States, New Zealand, and maybe Vietnam. What about so, India? We hear a lot about India. Well, India, um, India, <laughs> India is a place that is achieving, you know, the, the sort of next uh, stop after China. You know, it, it is, it has a, a large population, but it's going to suffer a demographic decline. Um, and and more importantly, if if you deal with the with the Indians, I don't know if you've ever been involved in business. The Indians mm -hmm. are very delightfully agreeable. When you have a factory in India, they always want to please you. They don't want to ever give you bad news. You have a factory in the U.S. Bobby gets off the machine, comes up and says, "That's the stupidest way of doing that. Why don't you change it?" And in America. If I'm a manager, I want to hear what Bobby has to say. I'd like to hear what you know, my Indian worker has to say, but it's a command economy there. You command and they obey. So I think it, it has a very limited cultural ability to be highly competitive. The Chinese will tell you what's wrong, but they also work really, really hard today and tonight, every one of them will be out there trying to find ways to interview for another job that makes 5% more. There's mm -hmm. no loyalty in China 
there's a hundred percent loyalty in India. So Dan, you tell me which is better. You know, for some mm -hmm. things, India is better. For some things, China was better. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Well, that's good. Well, let's talk about uh, the future of the world and the economics that you see and why you have uh, such a strong belief that the United States is going to come out on top in this deal. Let's let's start with you know the idea that there are business cycles. We started to talk about how I said machinery, you know, change the world. You could actually move machines. So in in the 1720s, 1730s, um, there was a business model formed where I didn't have to produce everything myself. I could have factories that would do my production by contract. It's the British manufacturing model. And when you look at the British manufacturing model, what you're going to find is that you have uh, a fixed cost, which means either I go get my raw materials or somebody sells me raw materials, that are about 75% of my costs. Then I have about 13.5% of my costs for energy. I have about 8.5% of my costs for um, labor and overhead, and I make a three and a half percent profit. So it's kind of like arithmetic. And if you try to cut prices on me, I say, I'm not gonna produce for you. If I try to raise prices and gouge you as my, you know, as, as my customer, you go find an, another contract. Now that model continues to, to, to drive the world. In China, the disruptive nature of the model was everybody sort of operating on this energy model when prices commoditized for energy and America stopped being this dominant energy producer. So if, I, if, if my input costs were 75% and I can't change that, and my, uh, my, my energy costs are 13.5% and that's kind of commoditized and I can't change that. So I really... Uh, competed with labor and overhead, right? So if I could change my labor and overhead costs, that three and a half percent, I didn't have to gouge my customer and charge more. I could produce it for less and then make my margin larger. So China, once you had the technology of communication, could actually, their labor and overhead was 5%. Hmm. So in 5%, going from eight and a half percent to 5%, when I only make a 3.5% profit, isn't three points, it's a 100% increase in profitability. If you look at multinational corporations uh, starting you know, really in the, in the 80s, outsourcing for multinational corporations, uh, profitability almost tripled. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it hit a high point around 2006, 2007, and it's been coming down ever since. Now, most people don't realize this, but and the stock market, you know, just has been paying more and more multiple. And then people have kind of like got more leverage there. And instead of actually being productive, they've, you know, used financial tools and such like that, you know, venture capital, you know, junk bonds, everything. But you're sort of on your productivity underlying this mm -hmm. is 
hasn't changed. China, and, and even worse, what happens if China's aging out and they're having to start charging more? So you hear this in China, that China's not as cheap as it used to be. Mm -hmm. So it's not as cheap as it used to be, and it's you know 10,000 miles away. That can't work. And what's now coming is the destruction of that cycle. That business model is you know, collapsing. And the next model will be reshoring to the US. And all of these sort of manufacturing technologies we know about, whether it's graphene or you know, um, greater amounts of robotics and such like that. And you have these miniature power plants, these nuclear power plants that are coming. Right. So you're going to have smaller factories closer to the customer at lower cost. So literally, China, um, I believe, is revolutionary. Because in China, if you take the jobs away, they don't take it lightly. Mm -hmm. So you got this turmoil going on in the U.S., where you've, you've got these groups that really believe that the you know, World Economic Forum, the sort of gentry should run the world and you know you should own nothing and feel good about it. I mean, the elites really are scared that they're going to lose what they have because, Dan, they are. They are. <laughs> There's yeah. $14 trillion, $14 trillion of sunk cost in China. You're never going to get it out. Mm -hmm. I've run factories and have factories in China. And, and you know, I'm going to do one in Mexico. I got to get a consultant. I, I got to go find a place to put it. I got to build a factory. I got to train a workforce. I got to get some, you know, uh, I, I got to have working capital before I can ship. In China, you fly there. I used to fly to the, it was Holiday Inn and of all places, right? In Hong Kong, and there was a guy there. You'd say what you want to do, and he'd say, okay, yeah, we want to do that. They said, well, I'm going to have to get a factory and, and pick a place to put. No, no problem. We'll give you a factory. Um, well, you know, I'm going to have to train a workforce. No, we'll do that for you. And then they go, well, we'll uh, okay, well, how much working capital needs? He says, oh, we'll even bank that. But every machine you put in here, they're going to put a GPS device on. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be able to move that machine again. Mm -hmm. So you get it up front. Up front, it costs nothing. It's like nothing you've ever done. But at the end of the at the end of the period, you can't move the machinery. So now that we're at the end of the period, Dan, how much money do you think they're putting into new machines in China? How much maintenance do you think I've been doing with the factories I've been involved in in China? Mm -hmm. Got it. You see what I mean about the mm -hmm. end of the world sort of phenomenon there? Mm-hmm. So what made it go was absolutely incredible. You know, and, and just as incredible at going up the escalator, the express elevator down is going to be epic. Well, and G is right now, uh, he's experiencing exactly what you're talking about because, you know, they said, we own the factories. That's the one thing about communism is that... Uh, you're right. You you may be able to do business there and everything's good until it isn't. And when it isn't, 
then the system tries to take over and take it back. And uh, that's problem for G, isn't it? Well, this was a guy who's you know made his bones on being you know such an international leader, Belt and Road. You know, in the last G20, in the last BRIC meeting, he didn't leave the country. Why would he not leave the country? We well, didn't leave the country because he was um, purging five of the top military generals in the People's Liberation Army, including the People's Liberation Army. Missile Corps. Mm. So know that. Uh, wow. he was afraid that, you know, when the cat's away, the mice are going to play. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how, that's how cautious he was um, about the beauty of the end. The end of dynasties in China is a hard day. Mm -hmm. I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah, it always has been. But now under this new system, you were talking about how uh, the demographics have changed. That's also why the real estate situation in China is the way it is. That's one of the reasons, certainly. They overdeveloped, and they weren't thinking about what was going to happen when you don't you have a smaller population. Dan, I'm going to give you a little different perspective on there. Yeah. They did what they had to do to get where they wanted to go. In China, this is the way it works, okay? That uh, the people are, the, the Chinese bureaucrats are paid very, very low money. I mean, it's really, really low pay. It's, you know, so it's not embarrassing to the worker. But because I like you and I have a factory in Wuhan, here are these Jitan cigarettes. You know, they're like the, they're sort of like still, cigarillos, I guess they call them. They're sort of dark there. And, and they're $120. I buy them for $120 a box. I give them to you. I do my nice bow. You take them. I give it two hands. You take it two hands. And an, an hour later, you go down and sell it to the guy that just sold it to me for $120. You sell it back to him for $80. And that afternoon, I go down and buy it for $120 and go to my next person I have to deal with. So nobody gets a bag of cash down. But they all get covassier, they get, and, and never break the seal. Mm. <laughs> you never break the seal. So all of this petty bribery, when you actually look at it, is very, very expensive. And because you have to do so much of it, you have these provinces. You have the federal government, then you have the provinces. I, I believe there's 38 provinces. I think there's 38 or some provinces. Um, but each one of the provinces is a separate government, not, not like a state, really more like a separate country. And they pretty much have control of all theirs. So they don't have a lot of revenue because remember that this business model we're doing isn't really about profit. It's about jobs and cash flow. And, and so to have uh, cash flow, these uh, provinces, they go find a piece of peasant land. They buy the peasant land out. They pay the peasants who don't really get a lot of you know, dealing money. They give them cash. They then get a phony baloney developer who works with their state-owned uh, bank, and they engage in what's called fractional banking. Remember that one? Oh, boy. We've been living yeah. with it forever. Yeah. Well, and, and so in China, you know, here in the U.S., um, before the 2009-2010 crash, 
used to be able to put a dollar in the bank. For every dollar deposited in the bank, I could loan it. Um, uh, I, I could loan that dollar out 25 times. And, and in Europe, it's about 25, maybe 30 in Germany. Well, in China, it's closer to 50. After the 2009-2010 crash, you started having rules. And so in the U.S., we went from this, you know, what, the $25 of loans for every $1 deposit, we went down to 13. So our runway to lend money, you had a massive contraction of lending. Hmm. Oh, different. So uh, the United States is the only country that, you know, deleveraged and everybody else had at least their leverage, if not. So the Chinese leverage is built off, I give the money to this developer. He actually builds a bunch of apartments, you know, a, a, a city without people living there. And he actually builds it. So he didn't steal the money, right, Dan? He made an investment. And you as a as as um, uh, a, a tiger mom in, in China, you can invest in that real estate because it's been booming, right? Especially since I control what I say the price is. Ah, mm -hmm. so when you invest, you don't buy part of the building. You just buy a piece of the leases of the building. You have a 70-year lease on an apartment, that's what you own. And you go down to the bank when you have the 70 year lease and you can borrow more money so you can do more fractional banking, right? Mm. And all of this sort of leverage is there. It looks legitimate on paper, Dan, but it's, you know, it's sort of like being in the plane and you hit an air pocket over Denver. I don't know if you ever had that experience. Oh, yeah, and, sure. And, oh, yeah, you drop 400 feet pretty fast, right? And it goes boom. Well, this one, you could you, you could go all the way down. So what you've got in China is it absolutely worked, and it was a wonderful 30 or 40 years, but the other side of the mountain is going to be epic financial crash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, I, I'm sort of, you know, so I am what I call a realist. I go to places. I want to know the system. I want to know what advantage I can make in the system. And I want to position myself to take advantage of that. Everything that I've done in China um, taught me that there is a, there's a set of rules. They're communist country. The rules are very legitimate. They're there. It's absolutely in paper. Everything's there until you pay the bribe. And then there's no rules. Mm -hmm. You know, and eventually that's not good. <laughs> and that's kind of, you're, you're running out of the money to pay the bribe. And everybody's sort of sitting around wondering what happens if this thing collapses. And when it collapses, um, it's going to be ugly. Well... It could very well be ugly, uh, almost undoubtedly. What do you think they're going to try to do, though, as far as uh, do a straw man, uh, do, do a false flag event, something to try to uh, paper it over? Do you see anything happening like that? Well, remember, it's very, very hard to 
to paper over going, it's, it's, it's really outstanding to go from two bowls of rice to three, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to paper over when you got to take the people back from three bowls of rice to two. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, you know, you, you get to thinking this is the level. So what happens when, you know, you, you take away a third of that, what, what happens when all their savings and their investments and all that end up going poof because you know their leases on an empty building is a lease on an empty building there's really no the economics don't exist as we understand it's yeah. not like you know your your hometown it's their hometown and i i think that i i've, I've been predicting this i believe that china will make a play for taiwan in the third quarter of 2024 and the reason being is the easiest way to be a, a, a brilliant economist is to watch the container traffic at the point port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. This is 62% of all the container traffic in America. A and that traffic is down a third. Mm -hmm. And you have in, 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 for the Chinese, you have what's called Christmas in July, which is where they do their order book for the next nine to 12 months. That order book, especially for what I'm involved in, which is uh, technology parts and issues like that, that order book's down 40%. Wow. There is no other customer. That book is rolling off. We're walking away from the machines. You know, they, they've got the GPS devices on it. Do you think I put any money in the maintenance? <laughs> Do you think I can't get more machines and go somewhere else? Sure. All of this is already moving down. Big time. And so they're going to end up with the machines and no customers to do anything with. Not only that, but the machines are uh, dilapidated by now because the maintenance uh, you've done otherwise because you know better, basically. Well, in China, the interesting thing in China is if I put somebody in charge of purchasing, they'll find me some way to get this part that I pay $5 for They'll find me some way to get it for three dollars. It'll not last at all. They they don't they they don't they don't understand quality. They never will because in their world it's always trying to get it cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. And when you're involved in something that's expensive, 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 you know the kind of higher tech, you know, higher value added things I'm involved in. You do not want to have uh, parts that are substandard. Sure. So if they take over these machines, I guarantee you, and, and they already are, that they'll maintenance them at the lowest level and they'll use the cheapest, you know, parts uh, for that maintenance. And, you know, their, their products, their products will reflect that. And, mm -hmm. and in a world where people have the ability to uh, judge quality and have the ability to benefit from quality, they're just not going to be competitive. Mm -hmm. And if you're not competitive, it isn't that you get 30% less orders, you get 80% less orders mm -hmm. <laughs> for quality. There's always somebody buys junk, but most people have to have you know high standards. Mm -hmm. That's Got my it. world, Dan. Got it. Got it. Well, um, you should talk about uh, you think they're going to move on Taiwan in the third quarter of next year. Why? Do you feel that way? And uh, what do you think the repercussions will be? 
Well, I, I don't know if they're going to win or lose. I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure if they're going to win or lose. I don't think it matters. I think they're going to avoid uh, the kind of revolution in the street that's mm-hmm. going to take off 100 million heads. Remember, I, I'll give you sort of the planning structure to invade China. I mean, I understand you have missiles. I understand you have jets, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's an eight-hour steam across those straits mm-hmm. for troop ships. There are only eight places on the island of Taiwan where you can actually land uh, ships and troops. So everybody knows what you're going to do. Um, so they either negotiate Taiwan joining China or they're going to take a shot at it. Um, and, and you can see in the elections coming up, you know, the, the Taiwanese may vote to go back to China for the simple fact that China's going to make this move, in my opinion. And, uh, yeah, and, and nobody wants to be Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. I mean, there's, you know, there's a, there's a poster child out there called Ukraine. If you think Ukraine was hard on the people, imagine when it's going to be an all-out war, mm-hmm. that they're willing to do anything to take that island. And, and getting the island, and I understand that, you know, Taiwan semiconductors there and all that, they, they don't care. They would like to get it, but they, they really, you know, Xi needs to do, put some points on the board. He needs to, you know, uh, do a communist, you know, triumph of some kind rather than the communist failure of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, I, we've we've seen that in the past so many times in our own culture. Uh, you know, the, the dogs of war are a great excuse when your economy is faltering. It does distract people, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Sure does. Sure does. Well, let's talk now about uh, about California. The California model. What's going on in California? And I know you're uh, one of the uh, founders, and I think a CEO of a uh, a movement in California to uh, form a new state, uh, the new California State Program. Talk. Uh, I we'll get into that later in the discussion, but talk about the model that California has become for why the United States shouldn't follow the same path. Well, California in the 1970s went bankrupt, and in the 1930s went bankrupt, and in the 1890s went bankrupt, because California would have these big, you know, booms, um, and then they would end, the gold was played out, and after the gold, the real estate was played out, and, you know, in 1890, uh, real estate prices in Los Angeles fell by 75%. Mm-hmm. And you had the 1893 panic, which is the worst depression in the history of America. Um, and, you know, it sort of started in California and went up to the country. And in the 30s, you know, California went bankrupt. It was this, it was the oil capital of the world still. And, and it, it, it ran out of cash. And it tried to get a bailout. They tried to get a bailout in the 1890s. They tried to get a bailout in the 1930s. They tried to get a bailout in the 1970s. And and the size of California makes it just ridiculous for the government, federal government to do that. So um, Jerry Brown was in his first two terms as governor. And California spent 18% of budgets every year on infrastructure. 18%. 
And the reason being is that California, if you don't take care of the forest, they can kill you. <laughs> if you don't take care of the water, you'll get these El Ninos where they massively flood and they can kill you. And if you don't take care of the population growth and such like that, you can have all these breakdowns. Well, this was the model all the way up until the 18, really, till 1975. And Jerry Brown shut down uh, infrastructure spending, went from 18% to 3%, and eventually went to three quarters of a percent. So California literally stopped investing in its traditional economy, which was um, farming uh, and manufacturing and, and other kinds of uh, uh, you know, uh, hard trades you know, that supported uh, aircraft manufacturing and the rest, uh, energy, for example. So Jerry Brown shut down all of this infrastructure spending and hit it just right because when you had the, the, the tax rebellion started in California with Prop 13, went national with Reagan and cut uh, capital gains from 78% to 28% and eventually 20 you kicked off the biggest venture capital boom in the history of the planet along the 40-mile strip of the coast of California. Mm. So you didn't do a darn thing when the population over the last 40 years has gone from 20 million to 40 million. Mm -hmm. And now that that 40-mile strip, you know, which is the nexus to China, and import, export, and technology, and shared services, and all this kind of thing, that is dying hard. And as it's dying hard, California already has, and has for the last four years, it doesn't have an audited financial statement. Could you imagine something as big as California without an audited financial statement? They don't have it. Um, California has run negative tax collection uh, since March of last year, each month has been lower and just had a surprise $25 billion larger negative tax collection. So you've, you've, gone, you've gone from an uh, $18 billion budget in 1978 to a $245 billion budget. That's an 18.5% 18 and a half times growth. Times, yeah. Yeah. So the personal income in the state only went up 13 and a half percent. So government was the biggest winner in this boom. Now you're on the other side where California is probably going to have their $245 billion budget last year. Their tax collection was $169 billion. Wow. And of course, they got ninety-two and a half billion dollars from you know COVID Joe, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that money's gone. And they just announced that all of the money from their reserves is gone. And oh, by the way, next year you could start running deficits in a recession of fifty billion dollars a year. Now, I could always cut spending, right? Oh well, no. California has this thing called the initiative. So there are 923 constitutional changes to California that sound like ideology, 
but mostly they lock in spending. So you really can't shrink the California budget. You can just default. Wow. Wow. I mean, those are big numbers anywhere. Well, and you've got you've got a lot of unfunded liabilities that are sitting out there just as well, right? That's right. I have a formula that tells me because I have this successful state and it's going to grow every year and the population's going to grow and, and it's going to fund this old, old burden of pensions. Well, we haven't grown for three years. Matter of fact, we're going down. And the biggest part of our you know, people leaving here, Dan, are not the rich folk. It's those kids that make $200,000 a year, get stock options that they cash in every once in a while for 300 grand. You know, young people, they're going back to Asia and they're going back to the Midwest because they all got attracted here. That's why you can have more uh, employment here, but you're just really getting employment from the illegal aliens we are we are inviting in, but the people who pay the taxes are gone. Mm -hmm. And Silicon Valley, um, <clears throat> you're, you're just seeing every month, you see 20,000 people that don't, you know, they're, they're, they're the techie kind of people that aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And at least half of those are coming from California, like 40 miles along the coast, and those are very high uh, income earners, formerly called taxpayers, <clears throat> and they're gone. Mm -hmm. And that's really know, what's happened. It's I know quite a few of them. Uh, quite a few of them have moved to places like Montana, Arizona, yeah. Texas. They're looking for opportunities in states that don't have that outrageous tax structure and aren't trying to rape the, the people who are working for a living. Well, one person's, you know, this is why you hear, you know, people in government here say, you know, it's like Obama said, you didn't build that factory. You know, you didn't make those jobs. It was really government spending <laughs> that did all this for you. And, and, and they really believe it. And Dan, if you'd done something for 40 years in a row and you hadn't internalized it, You'd be a traitor, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the educational system or, or you look at the sort of union system, um, they've lost industries, jobs, and such like that. And they believe more and more, if we just had more money to spend, we could make it all happen. Right, right. And there was a time you could actually, you know, there's a time you could build that model well, that was Keynesian economics, and, and it works over a very short period of time. But we've been wasting so much money for so long that the Keynesian model with the bathtub, well, guess what? That bathtub is overflowed. The room is full of water, and it's running out all the windows now. That's, you know, that's, that's, but every cycle has basically gone the same way. Now, the cycles are different, sort of. Um, one of the things the cycles have is you have an immigration cycle, then you have an anti-immigration cycle, then you have an immigration cycle, and then you have an anti-immigration cycle. And those anti-immigration cycles usually are rebellions against government because government's what, you know, they're, they're not, I mean, these are not 
illegal aliens, they're wage breakers. Isn't that what they are? They're mm -hmm. brought in because corporate interests want, you know, cheap labor. Cheap labor. And it's, it's just wage breaking. And on each one of these cycles, you know, it, it ends in a different way. The cycle that ended in the 30s, you know, be, be, um, uh, uh, really was a different cycle in that you had this incredible boom in immigration, which drove American wages down. America got to the point we were more than 50% of the world's production manufacturing. We just ran out of customers. We had cheap labor. I mean, you could do my little you know, box of costs. It didn't matter that we had the cheapest costs. We'd, we just, we were making more than you could actually consume. And then when you go down in an environment like that, people change what they consume. Right, right. I, I teach these classes at, at all the universities in Southern California. And, you know, these kids, these kids will do anything for an A because it's so powerful. It's so important for them. But do you think they really enjoy adults screaming down their neck? Mm -mm. Get them on the side. They are way unwoke. <laughs> they, well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because all I hear is how woke these kids are. So you're telling me that's not true. That's wonderful. Well, I mean, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, we used to go to the Vietnam, uh, the anti-Vietnam War, you know, uh, marches uh, up in Berkeley. You could meet girls that way. You realize that? <laughs> yeah. You could party. Yeah. I mean, what what better data? You know, what what kid doesn't want to go? You know, let's go. Hundred thousand kids who go in the street. We can drink and do what we do, and you know, we'll just start take over the town. You know, mm -hmm. and then you sort of, it starts to not be fun. And then it starts to be like, maybe that I would be the first generation that went down. And these kids have figured out that, and I really think the draft is, I can tell you the draft, adults don't think this is a big deal. You know, these kids oh. can all do arithmetic, maybe algorithms. They've figured out 65% you know, uh, they only make 65% of the quota for the army. And, and, and maybe we're going to have awards so the army would triple or something like that. They, they kind of get who's going to be invited to go fight, you know, old men wait war so young men can fight them. Right. Right. But also, but also they figured out that this isn't fun. Mm -hmm. It's not fun. You, you go to classrooms, you can see the boys are in the back kind of sully and they don't, they, they don't really engage very much. I, I work hard to engage them, but when you engage them, they've got all the, they've got all the opinions, you know, they, they've really moved. The girls haven't quite moved as much, but the, the girls have all of a sudden figured out that, you know, working in, in one of these not-for-profits and such like that, pretty much is low paid slave labor, mm -hmm. you know, they, it's not the government job. You know, they're, they're doing what used to be government jobs that were outsourced. I mean, this is what I, I love, Dan, about government. You know, I, I need this money because we're going to have these, you know, these great employed people and we're going to, you know, create the middle class. No, you give the money to government. They outsource everything to a not-for-profit, which is, a, you know, has no, manu no real, um, you know, management skills. But to, in, in, in most counties in California, um, the social welfare, you know, mental health especially, 
This is about 130% of what they spend on security. So it used to be, you know, cops and jails and, you know, and, and clean streets and such like that. The real money's gone over here to mental health, and it's very squishy to, to evaluate you know, the productivity. Now, if you're a sheriff, I've got all kinds of details and metrics on what you do. How many, how many miles you traveled, where you were, I've got GPS everywhere. Um, and, and you know how, how many cars you pulled over, how you treated people, it's all, everything's there. There is nothing like that in the not-for-profits. So that whole piece yeah. of government is out there constitutionally required to be funded. Hmm. And it's failing. It's failing these kids. And of course, you just look at the streets, the homeless and the rest of it, obviously it's failing the public. Right, right. I mean, th there is nothing like, you know, sort of walking down the sidewalk and having to go left and right to make sure that you don't sit in some feet, step in some feces, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is kind of the norm in certain cities in California, Portland, Seattle. Yeah, the 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 chickens are coming home to roost. Well, I mean, we've had, we, and, and that's why these young kids, they get it. I mean, it took them a while. I mean, it took my generation a while, you know, but, but my generation figured out that uh, government had failed them, that, you know, this, this philosophy of, of socialism, you know, was just a disaster. You could look at, in England and seeing what it what what had happened there, these kids are viscerally aware of the fact that they have student loans, and you know the, the student loans are one hundred and fifty percent of consumer loans now. You know all credit cards together, student loans are fifty percent more wow. than the one two trillion. Wow. It's it's one point eight trillion, and you know these loans, these student loans are not forgivable in bankruptcy court. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know, it's, you, you've got this, you know, weight on your neck and what you were told where the jobs would be, they're not going to be there, Dan. Mm -hmm. So they're ready for plan B. And I think they're going to shock everybody. It hasn't busted open yet, but it is busting open in California. California, you can see these kids not, you know, buying the Kool-Aid anymore. You can see these kids, they're tired of the inner city. They're tired of the urban rat race. They want to go suburban. They want to go rural. I mean, I'm up here in a place called Reading, and, and you could see the folks coming in. They've got lots of money living in apartments in San Francisco. You can live in a really nice house here. The technology allows you, you know, from remotely be right. as competitive as you can. I mean, the idea that you have internet is, is ubiquitous. Um, and mm -hmm. when, you know, and, and remember that this SpaceX model that Elon Musk is bringing down, when SpaceX is in play, right now it's sort of in play, but when it's fully, you know, uh, proliferated, you know, he's going to go from 4,000, um, which I believe it's he's at 4,000 right now, 4,000 satellites to about 16,000 satellites. He already has world coverage, but he's gonna have intense world coverage. 
So well, if you're a farmer in Montana and you're going to do winter wheat, you're going to be hooked up to SpaceX. You're going to know all the you're, you're going to know all the the water issues in the ground, the the uh, soil moisture. You're going to know what the weather patterns are coming in. You're going to have uh, you know your your productivity as far as your equipment. The equipment's going to actually have the same kind of sensors. I mean, if you proliferate the new model, what can you do in San Francisco that you can't do in Montana? Right. And more importantly, what can you do in San Francisco for less cost mm -hmm. than you can do in Montana? And if I'm going to have to pay people, I can pay people pretty darn good in Montana, and they get a nice house, three, four-bedroom house, or they can live in a, you know, in, in, in a two-bedroom walk-up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's just not that cool to be on the street in San Francisco. Might be well, pretty cool to be on the street, in, you know, in, in Bozeman, right? Well, not Bozeman. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Yeah, we 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 refer to uh, Bozeman as Bos Angeles, but I, I'm, uh, I'm just I'm I, just saying. I know, I know. But I'm telling you, Chris, what you're talking about, I recognize that. Uh, back in uh, 1995, and I actually, I've got a, a ranch up here in Montana. I moved here and could semi-retire at 46 years old because of technology. I had good internet up here, and I had a couple of really good managers to help me run my business in Colorado. I moved up here and I ended up uh, doing virtually everything I needed to do from my ranch up here in Montana. And I'd go to Colorado about uh, a half a dozen times a year. And uh, that was good enough. And the technology is so much better today than it was, uh, what, 28 years ago. I mean, it is now exponentially beyond that. And literally, you can do, if you're in the IT area, you can do anything from anywhere in the world and enjoy it. And that's the new technology you're talking about. That's the freedom that comes with that. I am tickled to death to hear that the young people are really starting to get that and really understand that this woke crap is for the birds and that socialism is not only dying, it's dead. Well, I don't think it ever dies, Dan. It it, it sort of it goes into remission. It's like a cancer. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, yeah, remission. you're right. You yeah. know, you're not, you got to talk to your doctor. You can always bring it back. It can always kill you later. But, you know, in, in each of these cycles, and, and I don't blame liberals for being liberal. I, uh, true liberals, you know, are, are a interesting group of people, and many of them are humanists. You know, they they have their, their they want to help the world and such like that. But most people who call themselves liberal, you know, and they really run the game. You know, they they want to be the nobility, right? Right. They right. want the old king system with the nobility. They're they're happy because the nobility in Europe was always a revolutionary group ready to kill the king whenever they thought they could, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the king so. had them all in, the kings would bring the nobility into the palace, 
because then I could manage you. You had to be here so much per year. You know, I could, could manage you. I could find out all the little whispers you're making and such like that. You know, I, I went and saw Napoleon o- over the weekend and I was really sad in that it, it was a movie that its scope was there. It's a brilliant individual who came from nothing, whether you agree with, with what he did or didn't do. And they, they made him as a cardboard person that wasn't really about creativity. I mean, everything he did was creative. He broke the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he uh, ended the terror um, and, and he brought back himself as an emperor, united Europe. Now, it didn't stay united because it's Europe. Um, but he, he, he did these great things and the way he won battles is every time he would have 30, 40% less troops, he, he would do things that weren't in the rule book that, mm-hmm. that you had studied in these great institutions of military strategy. And they were a paperweight. Imagine if, imagine uh, three months ago <clears throat> that Hamas would pull off this op and of all places, Israel. The highest level of uh, artificial intelligence uh, collecting, you know, sophisticated controlling system of a group of people on the planet and probably in the history of the planet, had full knowledge, full control, had technology of an incredibly advanced nature. And Hamas pulled off this thing at that big concert they saw these people flying in and these sort of, you know, the, these uh, they're sitting in a chair with a, a propeller on the back and, and had a parachute. They thought mm-hmm. it was a Red Bull commercial. They thought it was a party. They cheered them as they came in. Mm-hmm. So technology always is very, um, what's the word for it, impressed with itself. It isn't the future. Mm-hmm. Creative people who, and I'm not saying that Hamas should get any great credit for being creative people, but you, you got to look at this and talk about disruption. I mean, what Israel and the United States can't do is obvious. We can't make things. We can't produce 155 millimeter uh, artillery shells. Mm-hmm. We, we can't do it. I mean, we, we can't do basic um, clothing. We can't do basic uh, uh, food for troops in Ukraine. We don't have the capacity to do that. And, and yet we're this, we have these technologies that are so sophisticated. They're mostly sophisticated because we say they're sophisticated. You know, real sophisticated things are actually work. <laughs> so as, once you start to think that the world is not going to have a new class of creative, disruptive people. They shock you every time. Yeah, the wake-up call, wake call we're getting, whether it's Afghanistan, and that's you know 13th century, whether it's Ukraine, that's maybe 19th century. You know, whether it's it, whether it's uh, Gaza, that's you know just about as caveman type thing. I mean. Americans are seeing this and they're understanding that their betters, the people who said they would take care of them, are not good at this. Mm-hmm. You need a new model. And that's why I think young people are very perceptive and, and they're going to come out of this shell and they're going to do 
incredible things. We're just going to run through a pretty hard time to get there. Yeah. Well, I, I like that. I like that perspective, Chris. And the reason, you know, what what you're talking about is ingenuity. The one thing that America has always had is the freedom to be uh, ingenious, the freedom to be creators. And that's why they're trying so damn hard to make us into a country that no longer does that, because that is the key to individualism. That's the key to keeping our constitutional republic intact, is that kind of ingenuity. And, and you know, you were talking about the power elite. Um, you know, Marxism, communism, all these isms are only, I guess what I'd call tools or steps in the process that they ultimately envision, and that's technocratic feudalism. You said it earlier. They want to be in a new monarchy, and only a handful of them, that control and own everything, and the rest of us are going to be their slaves, basically, in a system that other people who were ingenious created, and they knew how to steal. That's really what these people are all about, isn't it? Well, I, I maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I guess they're sort of, you know, they don't perceive it as stealing. <laughs> they, they perceive it as liberating. But, you know, it gets a little old when you're, you know, as I said, you're liberating people from three bowls of rice to two bowls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not very liberating. You yeah. know, when young, young people who grow up, they sign up for, you know, to take all these classes, they work hard, they get into college, they get good grades, they take on a ton of debt, they come out and uh, they're making 20 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. they, they know people who, you know, the dumb guys in high school that went into, became welders, and they know in California, an aluminum welder, and you know, the difference between steel and aluminum, in steel, if I mess up, I can putty it up, I can sort of, in if you use aluminum, if you make a mistake, it's called scrap, it's very mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. You can make 125,000 as an aluminum welder in California. Mm -hmm. And I've, what a life. And, and have great niece. hours. I've got a niece doing that right now. And I, you know, I talk to young people. I tell them you're better off getting into a good trade, an electrician, a plumber, a welder, something like that. You're better off right now getting into a trade than you are getting a master's degree in some bullshit, uh, you know, a d degree that doesn't do anything, that can't make a living. Well, everything that you know, you can be 100% sure you're going to know something different later. <laughs> I mean, it, think how, th think if you were, you know, in, in the late 1890s, um, the uh, sort of social uh, media was posters. Have you ever heard about this? Mm -hmm. They made laws against posters because they plastered posters over every building and every place. And that was the disruptive technology. That was the consumer disruptive technology. Then they got rid of that and along came radio. I mean, imagine, you know, people talk to me from around the world. First, first I listened to these, you know, little devices and I could hear somebody and, you know, it, it could be in Czechoslovakia talking, whatever, depending on what you picked up. And then it was, they actually have radio shows and then they have television. 
you know, and, and th then they have computers and, and then they have, so, I mean, each one of these changes is wildly disruptive at the time, but after a period of time is no biggie. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know something different than the internet is gonna come. And I personally, I think that these new um, intranets, you know, this thing you can do with the SpaceX satellites is the next big innovation. I mean, you're sitting here running a show and you, know, you can broadcast all over the world. You don't need to be NBC. That you know, they're they're a paperweight in what you do. Exactly. We've got we've got followers in uh, places like Thailand, uh, the UK, South Africa. We hear about this all the time uh, from our viewers that contact us from all over the world. That is the technology of the future, no question. And this is actually old technology compared to what we're going to see. Well, we're, we're, but but you doesn't it doesn't matter your age. It's a matter that you'll take the step to get there, right? right? I mean, you went to Montana. I mean, come on, that was a big step. Most of your friends said, "Well, you know, I better, yeah, I don't know, you know, I got a consultant, yeah, yeah, I don't know." So I'm sure all that, and then you got there, and all of a sudden you found about two hours later that you could do this, right? Mm -hmm. And and now we're going to the next level. I think everything that we've seen so far. I mean, there's a great run for America. We've had this great technology, but it's really aging. Everybody else does it. Um, California is on the way down. Our, th they'll be literally missing payroll in February. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they, California needs a subsidy of around $50 billion a year. You know, the, the federal government spends what, five, six billion dollars, six trillion? No, they don't. The, uh, the, the system spends uh, about $5 trillion and the, what's called um, discretionary spending that Congress can actually make a difference on mm -hmm. is about $750 billion. Now, about half of that, Dan, is something you can't really not fund because it's health and things that you need. It, it really should be on budget, but it's it's in the discretionary. So these guys are down to $350 billion. Did you know that California, with 10.5% of the population, gets 15% of all federal spending? They're already getting, they're already getting almost 50% more than their population. You think everybody in Congress doesn't know that? Mm -hmm. Got it. So spending in California, federal government spending in California is three hundred billion dollars a year and this money comes to the it the, the federal government really doesn't administer much of anything they send it to the states and the states administer it so when it arrives in a bank account in california dan the first thing that california does they take 12 and a half percent off as an administrative fee and then they send it to the counties who take 12 and a half percent off as an administrative fee, and they pretty much do the work. In California now, you're going to have 50 billion less cash flow. I mean, you're gonna run 50 billion negative cash flow. Are, are you, do you really think that, that the congressman in Montana and you know, New, York's, New York and you know, maybe Florida, they're, they're gonna to wanna to increase the subsidy that California already has 
they're going to take one out of seven discretionary dollars they have and and you know give them to California. It's impossible. It can't happen. It didn't yeah. happen before, and now the numbers are staggering. So well, we're going to crash starting in February. I mean, we already sort of crashed on uh, as far as the analysis. You can see where they're, you know, they're, they're, they've run out of cash. But February, literally, you have this flow of cash. You know, your, your high points and low points of cash during the year. California's low is October and February. So you're going to run into the absolute, you know, uh, cash flow hell in February, and we'll find out what happens. Yeah. And oh, yeah. by the way, if there's a recession, it could be thirty billion dollars worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and get this too, uh, Chris, <laughs> our debt because of inflation and the fact that we've been funding this enormous, an enormous debt for so long, and now the genie's out of the bottle, the uh, the interest on the debt just broke a trillion dollars and looks like it's heading for $2 trillion. Well, guess what that does to our federal budget on top of everything else? We've been borrowing money to pay for all the crap we're doing anyway. Can you imagine what that's going to do when the interest rates across the board are double uh, what, what they've been? I mean, we could fund a lot of debt when we were paying 0.2% uh, interest right. on the debt. But now that we're paying five and a half, six percent interest on that debt, oh boy, are the chickens coming home to roost or what? Well, here's I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of mix it up here, Dan. I think you the you can never pay it off by shrinking spending. You can only pay it off by having a bigger pie. Now, shrinking spending is easy in a bigger pie because a bigger pie means more people are employed, more people don't need those services and such like that. You've been operating a system that has really failed the middle class and you've been bribing, trying to bribe them you know, with, with this social welfare that, that sort of gives them a nasty life. Um, I, over Thanksgiving, I was serving you know, at uh, the Veterans Hall, you know, the the, mm -hmm. the homeless are low income for but my community. And these weren't all really low income people. These are people who've been pushed down to a position where free food sounded pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. they, they've lost they've lost their personal respect. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, they, they'd rather go get the free meal than than suffer. And yeah. I understand that uh, California has this image as this incredibly successful state and this big financial boom, but if you talk to regular people, they don't think it's so good. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, if you're going to re-platform uh, manufacturing in the U.S., did you know that California is 14% of all manufacturing right now in the US. It's bigger than Indiana, Illinois, and um, Ohio combined, the next three. Mm. Wow. It's still the big dog, mm -hmm. but it used to, we used to produce, you know, 62% of the 
planes for World War II and 43% of the ships. There is no, you know, uh, aircraft manufacturing here. There is no, you know, marine uh, manufacturing. But California has this incredible platform inside this little strip of the coast, which has the second largest oil reserves in the country. Mm-hmm. It's never been fracked. And it has fantastic productivity for agriculture. And it has it used to every farming town used to have a big box factory because a farmer can't make it as a farmer, you know, 12 months a year, he's got to have a second thing, either drive a truck. You see these guys doing this, but it used to have all these factories. They're all gone. You can bring all that back, but you can't bring fracking. One of the things California says is we're environmentally green. Mm-hmm. Environmentally green means we don't have the money to spend on building new power plants and supporting that. We don't have the money. California has had six dams approved by the federal government in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. They haven't built a single one of them. They're tearing them out faster than they're building them. Well, they're tearing them out, Dan, because they can't afford to maintain them. Mm-hmm. You know, they used to have these little dams, and little dams, people say, are kind of stupid. No, the what little dams there, they're called speed breaks. So when you get a massive, you know, El Nino rain that comes down, these little dams, everybody says, oh, they're just going to break anyway. Good. <laughs> but before they break, they slow down the water. They break, it goes down, the next one slows it down. And hopefully the speed of the water goes, you know, is, is maintained. So California in uh, New California, our effort is really going to turn this all around in that um, if you look at the number of people that California has and the number of square footage, about 90, 88 or about 88 to 90 percent of California is rear, is rural or suburban, mm-hmm. about 70 of California, 76% is rural. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that land could be wildly productive if you had water and electricity. I know they're building these these windmills. They don't work. Mm -hmm. I I know they're building these solar. They they look great. They get not real. (laughs) They don't work. If yeah. you were to, if, if you're going to replatform, you know, manufacturing back to the U.S., reindustrialize, California needs to be your spark plug. Mm-hmm. And so, we have four hundred thousand people participating in this movement, and people here are very. We understand financially how the game is played. I sat on a, a five-member advisory board to the California uh, treasurer. In 2009 and 2010, when the state had failed and they couldn't make payroll, and I saw every liberal group come in, be willing to sell out their ideology if you'd keep the employment. Mm -hmm. And we were going to do these real changes, and then all of a sudden the employment came back in 2010, you know, the economy righted itself, and immediately all those plans went out the window. But everything that we plan for, New California can do. And we can do it because it's all going to be new power plants. They'll be wildly productive. California has the highest energy costs uh, in in the continental United States right now. 
because we import 35% of our power, mostly from Utah, you know, burning coal. Mm -hmm. So environmentally, we're a big mess. As I said, you know, these, these six dams, you know, you do this thing, you store water, which has value, and then it falls. And what does it fall into? It, it, it falls into a money machine called turbines that yep. make electricity. Yeah, for so, for pennies on the dollar of what well, all the so-called uh, green energy does. When they built California's, uh, you know, when California built out and built their electric utilities in 1900, you had PG&E in Southern California Edison. And the way they were financed is public-private partnerships. So you the, 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 the state gave the right-of-way and the permits and all that for these, you know, commercial Wall Street-based entities um, to build up this system with the idea that eventually they would you know, become public power. But that financing scheme, you can go back and do that with Wall Street. I, I'm from Wall Street. I can tell you that, you know, no deal too big, no fee too big. <laughs> and so, you know, this is going to be the biggest civil engineering project on the planet. Imagine six dams. Wow. And so, so New California, because we don't have the burdens of the pensions and, and, and the off-balance sheet liabilities and the cash flow issues, we can generate power for about $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour versus 22 now. Mm-hmm. So we're going to carve this off, Dan, 90%, 85 90% of the square footage, about half the population. And then what's old California going to do? Old California is going to buy power from New California at eight cents a kilowatt hour, and they're going to continue to sell it at twenty-two cents a kilowatt hour, and finance their their uh, pensions and other shortfalls. Hmm. It just makes sense. Well, let me. I was going to ask you how you thought that they were going to let you steal the goose that's laid the golden egg. Uh, so that's what you're saying. That's why they would even contemplate letting something like this happen. Uh, that's an interesting concept. So let's say you're in old California. You know, when you take these rural and suburbans away, aren't you going to be left with a social justice wonderland? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll, wonderland, I, that's a term that... Uh, I don't know if that's quite the one I had in mind. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying mazel tov, you know? Yeah. You know, so, uh, but in, in your social justice wonderland, you're not going to have competitive elections. You're not going to worry about that anymore. Um, in the rest of California, I want to tell you that uh, it'll be very conservative at first, but, you know, it's California eventually, you know, 10, 20 years out, it'll probably get more competitive. But remember, that California has, uh, if we start becoming an, uh, a water capital again and an energy capital again, we're going to frack what's called the, the uh, Monterey Shale. Hmm. This is the best formation of oil and gas really left, but you don't have enough electricity and water. It takes about takes about four gallons of water to make a gallon of, uh, of petroleum. And that's the way you got to inject uh, mm-hmm. and then you get out. You can use that water over and over again, 
But to build a system and implement a system, California would have to have massive amounts of new electricity and, of course, a very consistent water system, which we don't. You know, with, with a system for 20 million people, when they stop building it, now you have 40 million people, you're always going to go like this. We want to stabilize that uh, water. We want to be able to use that water in, in California has maybe two years of El Nino where um, in, you'll have this one, in 1868, remember Sheridan, the guy that marched to the sea in Atlanta, mm-hmm. burned Atlanta? Phil his first, his yeah. first duty officer, the duty office out at, at, when the Civil War was over was California. He had two things to say about it. He said, it's a tinderbox, which means you can get fire all the time. But he also, in 1868, they had 12 feet of standing water across the entire Central Valley. Take a look on the map of the green stuff. That thing was, you couldn't get rid of the water, Dan. There was so much water, it killed people. And of course, you know, they started building the infrastructure because of that, and and it worked. Um, Imagine if California starts booming, this thing will, you know, have a, it, it will start absolutely metastasizing. I love that word metastasizing. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll start getting the feeder, you know, to, to be a manufacturing capital of the world again, we need clusters and supports and we need skills. And if you're in the Midwest, you know, what used to be called the Rust Belt and to, to a lot of people is the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people, there's Cali- uh, California isn't that big, but across the Midwest, there's a, there's a thousand mile across and, and a thousand mile down square called the wheat and, and corn belt, right? Mm-hmm. California's uh, Midwest, everybody in there has hand skills. Everybody in there is the kind of person you need for these new factories that are coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, what if you had a heartland? Boom. I mean, I understand it's going to be a little rough on San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, maybe even Boston. But if you have this new boom, a lot of the people, those are going to be the people that were left behind. What if they, those who were last become those who are first? I love it. I I love it. That's what uh, Hillary Clinton famously uh, called the uh, flyover country. But the fact is, yeah, you're right. There are people that actually work for a living and have skills. And should get rewarded, right? Yeah, I grew up in rural Montana. We learned how to do everything. I knew how to I knew how to fix cars, I knew how to weld, I knew how to do everything. I could shoe a horse, I could do virtually anything that was necessary with my hands. And when I went to college, uh that was just uh frosting on the cake because I could take a lot of those skills and and put them to work. That's why I ended up being a commercial building contractor. That's why I ended up going to the School of Architecture. It was because I could take those very uh, traditional mechanical skills and turn them into something productive. Well, in, you know, here in California and across the country, the, the, the Clinton administration, you talk about Hillary, oh, she's, she's just really a sweetheart. She pushed something called No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand Bush... You know, implemented it, but it was all Clinton, 
It was the, the Clinton machine that was there, no child left behind. You know what the childs that were left behind was it ended shop classes. Mm-hmm. You didn't get any, in, in no child left behind, you got no credit for taking shop classes before you did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, for if, if you're a high school and you're competing for these numbers, and remember, no child left behind, about 15% of high schools got financial rewards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and everybody got something, but th- there was more if you could could move your population up, but it was what you were measuring. You could have been the most successful, you know, um, manufacturing, uh, uh, traditional skills, hand skills, a high school, and you got no points for it. Mm-hmm. So you had to throw that away and compete for where you got points for. This was self-induced suicide. And yeah. Hillary Clinton felt good about it. You know, mm-hmm. she she never got her hands dirty. Do you think she really, the idea she's going to shoe a horse or, you know, do you think she ever had to fix a car? No, certainly not. I mean, that's the problem with elitism is that they make decisions for the rest of us that have to live with those stupid ideas. Well, but the good news is, Dan, imagine if their whole system had failed and you could come and start a new system and learn from what failed. Mm-hmm. That's the future. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk about, we, we've got about 20 minutes left. I want you to um, kind of put together your scenario of how this whole thing that has happened in California is going to evolve nationwide and then how we're going to uh, uh, see the good of that by cleaning out the system and getting back to good common sense and, and practical management. Well, you know, there's nothing that bad government can't do to make the world better. <laughs> Let's talk about that, okay? Nothing that bad that that uh, bad politicians can't do to make the government be- the world better. Uh, America has been running a business model that really is the post World War II model. So we have become this. You know, people always like to scream about the, the Federal Reserve and you know the, the, the Jekyll Island and all this kind of stuff. Um, the Federal Reserve. Um, is actually a, a was a way to make sure the Treasury Department of the United States government didn't control the money supply. Could you imagine what life would have been like in the Clinton administration or the Obama administration if Bill uh, or Barack had run the money supply? They could just do what they wanted with it. They could borrow money. They they could increase a fractional banking. You know, so in, so you have these things. They're sort of made, you know, rigidities. And then you have guys that come along like Joe Biden, who absolutely is a man of the 60s and 70s. He is a man of a failed end of a cycle who wants to make that cycle continue. He, he, he believes in this centralized sort of world that he lived in. And this is where all the brains are, and and you over there are just, you know, you're you're not really part of the game. So he wants to do these things and show how tough a guy he is. What if I told you that the best thing can happen to America 
is we lose the reserve currency. Oh, the good absolutely. News, yeah. The good news about the reserve currency is I get to do business in the world and you have to transact in dollars. So since I have dollars and you have to transact, you're going to have to pay a friction cost, right? A small amount. Used to be three quarters of a percent. It's about it's about a tenth of a percent now. So there is an advantage financially. But when you're the reserve currency of the world, you have to bail out every loser that plays with you. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. that was great when you were trying to defeat the Soviet Union. They collapsed. Why would you then? What? Why would you take the peace dividend? from the collapse of the Soviet Union and spend it on being more global. Mm-hmm. Isn't it time to, they should have taken that money and they should have reinvested into America. They should have made great tax cuts and advantages to to, um, to, to really drive another you know, manufacturing cycle. You know, we needed this for the future. We needed to lead the world in, in something the world wanna buy not lead the world in spending deficit money to buy something the world makes. So we're good old Joe is going to solve that for us. (laughs) He's, he's created um, two or three uh, financial systems out there that we don't have to bail out anymore. For example, Saudi Arabia just cut a deal with China and they're going to trade in, uh, Yuan, and I can't remember the Saudi uh, currency, but but they have these swap agreements, so they really don't have to go through the dollar. So if you don't have to go through the dollar, and that means that we really don't have to be involved in the way we are in Europe. And y- Europe is your, Europe is a place that is dying. I mean, for, it had a 500-year run. It, it is not going to have a 500-year more run. Mm-hmm. You know, the future is moving out of that area. There'll be new places in the world that are competitive but competitive to buy what America makes. How much does Europe buy of what America makes? I mean, they do buy some planes, but not very many. Hmm. They do buy some military equipment, but a lot of it they do themselves. So we're going to have a new environment where it's gonna be America first and American competitiveness first. We're gonna drive down these costs because our new factories are gonna be more productive, we're going to drive down these costs because we have a population that's stable to growing and the rest of the world's going the other direction. How can that not be a winning hand? Well, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. I, I like what you're saying there, I, and I agree. Uh, us being the world's reserve currency, when we were fiscally responsible, that was a wonderful thing. But uh, guess what? Uh, when you're deficit spending the way we have for this long, all we've done is created enemies all over the world because they see us living large by basically taking advantage of their economic system. And, and, and you know, we've, we're failures. I mean, you know, you, you go to downtown Paris, it looks fantastic, right? You go the, the Champs-Élysées, it's great. You go five miles, you know, over there where the apartments are and, and where all the immigrants are, and they mm-hmm. burn cars every night. 
Right. So, no, right. You know, people are surprised you have BLM. They've been doing this in Europe for 15 years. Yeah. Europe's middle class has failed, and they've been people have been angry about it. You remember the yellow, yellow, yellow vest guys and all that kind of stuff. We're going to be the world's leader because we're going to be the manufacturing leader of the world, and people are going to want to play with us. Hmm. We're going to be able to sell them products at a better price that's going to make their life better. And we're not going to do it in such a way as we're going to mess with their politics. Hmm. I, I mean, that. do we really, where do we, why are we in all these countries if they're not about, you know, at least, you know, when you had the British Empire, they were looking for raw materials, right? Right, right, What, right. what do we get in raw materials that we're spending in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine and, and soon to be Taiwan? I mean, it's sort of like a bad bet, mm-hmm. you know, and don't be surprised that it goes the wrong direction. Joe Biden, he's he's still in his mind of the 60s and 70s. You know, he's still the Cold War ro- warrior, you know, when I got these generals that, you know, they, they tell me this and, you know, that, that we're going to do this and we're going to be more powerful and you're going to respect me. Nobody respects you. Mm-hmm. Got news for it. They respect a winner, not a loser. So if America becomes a winner and we've got the platform to do it, I mean, there are a lot of things. I consult to China, and um, one of the uh, one of the issues I keep telling them, and it drives them crazy, is I for a long time as I was telling them, stop looking east and start looking west. You're going to go to Eurasia. Your neighbor, you have this incredible piece of real estate. And we're now going to start building the infrastructure in that real estate that's going to come down to the Black Sea. They're going to build a canal. Right now, they have this thing in the Black Sea to get out into the Mediterranean called the Dard- um, Dardanelle Straits. Yeah. yeah, Dardanelle Straits. But it's very curved, and you can, you know, it, it takes a, about 13 hours to transit it, 13, 14 hours. They're going to build a canal 20 miles um, uh, west of Istanbul called, of course, the Istanbul Canal. It's going to be a straight line. It's going to have little choo-choo trains on the side that, that pull the boats. You know, it's going to have the, all, all the technology Suez had, you know, 100 years ago, and it's going to change the transit to four hours. They're going to have canals and locks that go all the way up to the top of Germany. You're going to have, you can go down by water travel. Water travels one-seventh the cost uh, of trucking, Mm-hmm. So if you have this system, and you you can you don't have to go around Gibraltar. I mean, the economics of that are, are absolutely jarring. Where is the population growth? It's growing in Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that, so you're you're coming to the future. Why don't you come to the future? And for China, this was making them very angry when. Chris would come and lecture. And the Chinese government, I got to give them credit for it. I wrote a piece called China Will Have the Mother of All Banking Crisis that and I, I, at the start of the show, I told you how the system is eventually going to fall apart. And, and I would give these perspectives of the future, the way forward, and I would get a pretty hard reception. But I was amazed that the Chinese government was willing to do this. They didn't necessarily believe me, Dan. But they wanted their people to hear a different perspective. 
And, you know, so a lot of those people I gave lectures to, you know, they that's a lot of Belton Road happens to be going that way. Did you notice that? I see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I'm not going to say that I get a lot of credit for that. That was going to happen anyway. But I dealt with the top people. I had their Supreme Court for seven days of lecture. Wow. I mean, and, you know, and they, the first two days, they were not used to that kind of environment. But if you're the Supreme Court in China, you see all these businesses, you, you see all the disagreements, you sort of hear what's going on. I mean, being a justice at the top of any system, whether it was the United States or anywhere else, you're going to see how the country works. And, you know, some, some of those lectures that I gave, I, th- I think, you know, move the needle. So at the so as America comes forward, China's going to crash, Europe's going to crash. Get over it. Go through the go, go through the cauldron, come out the other side with a new business model. America can lead. We need the world. The world needs us. We just don't need to bribe it or borrow it. You yeah. want to play with us or threaten it. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the same thing. But if you want to play with us, you know, let's, let's have real rules. You know, we're, we're in your best interest. You play with the new America, you're going to be on a winning team. That's pretty attractive. How do we get back to the new America? Because the fact is, we've got a whole bunch of people right now, uh, progressives, supposedly, which is, I think, the biggest misnomer in the world. Uh, I call them regressives, but we've got these people that are trying to push this socialist model. What's the best way to fight back? Young people just say, no, thank you. And I can tell you, they're already starting to do that. The fact that they don't do it to you directly, I mean, kids don't talk to older adults, right? Actually, I've got quite a few that do. And uh, They actually talk to their grandparents, not their parents. It reinforces what you're saying, though, because I talk to a lot of young people that are uh, starting to get it in a big way, and they're really bright young people. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's their time. And when you talk to them and say, look, we've had these cycles before. It's normal that it ends in chaos because it doesn't work. So all the ideology, and you got to get a new model that works and if the moon model works you take out a lot of the ideology right you're too busy making money and being successful and having more families and such like that you want to see how it really works in america go to a coffee shop watch these you know especially newport beach that's where i'm from but you go there these girls look good they're all you know they're wearing the nice clothes they got the bag and all that and in comes the most devastatingly you know, the, the the winner coming into that coffee shop, woman to woman, is a young girl with her arm on her husband's, you know, uh, holding her husband's arm, pushing a baby stroll. Hmm. They all go like, gee, you know, beep, 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 beep. I mean, it, it is, <laughs> you know, having a, having a traditional, they call it trad wife, I'm not saying, and I believe women, when you're talking about women welding, um, I got, I probably made more women welders in in my career uh, than anybody else because I told them it was sewing. 
You get women to do really precise. They love doing that. They love that. Whereas men are terrible at it. They like to do the big heavy stuff. But, you know, proud wife is the new mind. I want to be a wife. I want to have kids. I want to have a family. I want to have holidays, but I'm home for the holidays. I want to see my children grow up and be successful. I, I want to have respect for myself. I don't want to live in a tower. I don't want to have, you know, this, you'll be 40 years old and be alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about a lot of those liberals that are angry. Aren't they 40 or over and alone? Oh, yeah. A lot of them are. You bet. I mean, that doesn't sound too attractive to the kids I, I lecture at universities. You know, to the, to the people I talk to on the side, that is not attractive, and they know what it looks like. They don't want to be that person. They don't want to be the, you know, the loser living in their parents' basement when they're 30 and 40. No, they want to have, they, they want to have their little house and, and, you know, their little yard. They all want to have a dog. Starts out with a dog, then pretty soon it's, well, we need to have some children. That's sort of the pre, pre-child is a dog. And, and then we want to have, you know, relationships. They want to go to the baseball games. They want to have, you know, things at school with their kids. They want to have a real life. And I think as much as, as people try to reject, the, the people you talk about, the progressives that reject that, just makes it all the more uh, attractive to these young people. So I, I think the dam is breaking. It's going to take a little while, but we're on the way to the next boom. It, it'll be all about children and families and successful Americans and, and probably low debt, and they're absolutely going to shut down immigration. They've had enough of that. So I think that you know if, if, if we live long enough, we're going to see this. It's going to take about five or six years before it really turns. In California, we're about a year out. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is about two to three years out. So you got some, there's more hell to come. I mean, I would assume what's going on right now, kind of, you know, Ukraine, you know, Israel, all, all that, the rest of it, you know, it's pretty much the definition of hell. But we're going through that. And on the other side of this, we're going to, you know, put away, put away childish things and, and build a new model that's going to make America better than it's ever been before. I love it. I absolutely love that message. I, uh, Chris, this has been a great discussion because you're telling me things that uh, give me a sense of positivity, the, the young people, because I do have a lot of young people that I talk to, but they are far and away the majority right now. I'm sorry, minority right now. They're not the majority, they're the minority. But you're absolutely right. Our generation, and you and I are exactly the same age, our generation had to go through that crap in the 60s and early 70s. And, of course, you know, Going to any university, you got a bunch of Marxists teaching you uh, Marxism. That's what they want to do. But then as soon as you start paying taxes and start paying for all the crap they're talking about, it doesn't take very long to wake up to the reality. And you're right. This new idea that uh, we're going to fill our military with draftees is exactly the wrong thing to do. Exactly the wrong we'll thing. Fight for Joe. We well, we saw it in Vietnam. We saw it with LBJ. You know, 
That and, was an attractive guy to fight for. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I'm greatest patriot in the world. I, I uh, served in the military. I even volunteered for the draft at one point in my life. But I can tell you, it is not the thing you want to do. I, I was in Vietnam and, you know, I was a medic in Vietnam and, you know, and, and I think that for our generation, um, it just made no sense. When you got there, you looked around, you said, this doesn't work. It's not going to work. Why are we here? I mean, yeah. even, and that didn't mean you weren't a good American and you weren't, you know, going to work hard in your job or whatever, but you know, it's time to start doing things that make sense. Mm -hmm. and, and that changed my generation. And at first it was a rejection of, the you know the the current model and then we had jimmy carter which told us you don't want to go that direction right he he, he may be worse than joe joe biden i mean jimmy's mm. that, that was a piece of work so yeah he know, was a piece of up. work but i can't think of anybody worse than old biden unless maybe uh, it was obama <laughs> I, I i'm just saying that it takes a failed president and and you, you can't hit joe's a poster child i mean he gets he gets every award for, you know, a numbskull, right? Mm -hmm. If worse. I mean, a crooked numbskull, all the better. Um, so these kids, they're going to reject this. They're going to be like us. They're going to make that turn. And they're going to, they're going to, they're going to honor us with a great, you know, in, increase in wealth and not just wealth for some people, broad-based wealth in the United States. We're going to be that bright, shining uh, house on the hill for the world again. Let's, let's be the example instead of trying to put our thumb on it. And so I'm, I, Dan, I, and I'm sort of have the advantage of, of this consulting I do um, because, trust me, not everybody's happy. When you bring Chris in, you're going to mix it up. I mean, that's what I do. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to be confrontational, I want to be disruptive. Um, but that brings the best out of people, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we see coming as far as these new technologies and the advantage of being an American and in the land of America, all that works each cycle to a bigger and bigger success. That's amazing. Well, Chris, we're out of time. I see Patrick Howley is ready to go with uh, the campaign show, but I really appreciate having you as a guest. I'd love to have you back. Uh, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you. I'd love to have you back at another time because I want to see how this all plays out. And we're going to see by February, we're going to see things starting to go south. I, I know that for an absolute fact. And so all I can tell you is that I'm looking forward to future discussions like this. Well, thanks uh, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Chris, thank you so much. And I want to thank our viewers and our listeners for joining us for Connecting the Dots. Join us again on Tuesday morning, and we'll see you again then. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to LA, where there's pride in every American.
apart And it's time we stand and say